it's my privilege this morning to introduce the speaker, uh, Pastor Phil Harrison and his wife Susan are with us, and uh, they have a special connection here at Dorseyville. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of what that is, but Stephanie Conklin, a pastor's wife, is their daughter. So they have a number of reasons to be here, but they're here right now to uh, lead us in the message and uh, to share with us in our worship. Um, Pastor Phil had uh, served in the Newcastle First Church uh, for a number of years, and most recently, I believe, completed a interim pastor at Mashanic uh, Alliance Church. So uh, with that, would you welcome Pastor Phil? We're looking forward to your uh, message, what God has to say through your message this morning. Thank you. It is my privilege to be able to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm subbing in for your wonderful pastor, Mark Conklin. Though saddened by the sickness in the Conklin household, I'm happy for the opportunity to bring you this message from God's Word. As I uh, have had opportunity, I've, it's been almost two years uh, since I've been with you. Uh, and since then, I've been an interim pastor in two different situations. And thankfully, in both of those situations, there are pastors there now that are serving, and we're thankful for the par part that we were able to play in those congregations. Uh, but the way the Lord knows all things, He set things up so that after one interim, the very next Sunday, I began my next interim, and then this time, when my interim position was over, uh, I was asked to do pulpit supply while another pastor was at Life. Uh, so I had two Sundays that I was doing pulpit supply, and then I had this Sunday open. Well, the Lord knew. He had everything worked out, uh, and so I believe that God has a purpose uh, for us today uh, and that he has something to give to us from his word. If I could give you seven steps that would lead you to success, would you be interested in that? Uh, it seems that there are many leadership books that give seven steps or five steps or three steps that tell you how you can be a successful leader. Uh, and we love those formulas for success. Today's scripture, though, isn't about leadership success. Rather, it is about a promise of the Lord through the Apostle Peter, that if we apply these seven qualities to our faith, seven qualities of transforming faith, that these things will make us more productive as a Christian. So it's in a sense saying God has blessed us and he wants to bless us. He wants to draw us in closer and closer. And here are some ways that we can lean in. Here are some ways that we can prepare ourselves. Or as a former president of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, uh, Gary Benedict said, it's a way that we can be in a blessable position so that we can be in that place where God can bless Let's look at Peter's seven qualities of transforming faith from 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 
We're going to actually begin with verse 2, and then you will see uh, verse 5 show up on the screen, uh, and then we'll continue on. Beginning with verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, Let's, there we go. This very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts and lives this day. Now verses 8 and 9, those that I just finished with, 8 is still on the screen. Uh, these sort of tell us how important these characteristics or qualities are uh, to our lives. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. So on the positive side, if we're practicing the qualities in an increasing measure, meaning not just that we do this once and forget about it, but that we continue to give ourselves in these ways to the Lord, then we become more fruitful, more productive in our lives. On the other hand, if we just don't do anything about these, then we're blind or short-sighted. And it's as if we've forgotten our relationship with God and the forgiveness that he's provided for us through Jesus. So Peter is telling us these things. He's saying, knowing these wonderful things, the magnificent and precious promises of God, knowing his glory, his excellence, and being invited to be a part of his family, then we should give ourselves to the practice of these qualities. And he says, uh, knowing these things, apply all diligence in putting these steps into practice. I want to think with you for a moment about applying all diligence. Now, applying is bringing alongside uh, or exhibiting something in addition. I think of applying a coat of paint to a wall. There's a wall, and you're taking the paint, and you're adding it to the wall. So this applying is an application. We're putting something on top of something else. Now, in one sense, 
Peter is using this and referring back to the precious promises that he's just talked about, the precious promises of God, and says to bring alongside those promises a diligence of heart and practice. Because God invites us into his vast fullness, his overwhelming abundance. We should eagerly accept his invitation and take steps to apply his truths with diligence. And the word for diligence is more than just being careful and following the steps uh, that are laid out for us or being responsible to practice these things, but rather it's an attitude of desire. There is a, a, an eagerness, a desire, a hunger in order to uh, move forward in these directions, to embrace them, to dive into them. The word speaks of moving with haste and doing this quickly and earnestly, not putting it off until there's some more convenient time, but rather we dive in now. Because of God's amazing, abundant blessings and magnificent promises, Peter calls on us to dig in to God's blessings with an eagerness to experience the life that God has for us. So he says, applying all diligence. And then he goes on to say, in your faith, supply. In your faith, supply. Or we could translate this, alongside your faith, supply this or onto your faith add this or onto your faith add not only add it but add with abundance if we use that illustration of putting on the paint don't be sparse with the paint but slap it on good and thick now those of you who are painters know better ways to do this but i'm just using an illustration uh, mine is messy uh, but we think about adding adding with abundance with generosity it's important for us to remember that the foundation is faith. The foundation is faith. Uh, all of this is adding on to faith. A person who has no faith can practice these seven principles. They may even uh, find some benefit in practicing these principles, but they will not experience the fullness of God that he intends for us. Faith is first. Faith is the foundation do you have faith in him? All seven qualities that Peter gives us are applications of faith, or they could be called building blocks to be added onto the foundation of faith. Let's go back to the thought of abundance. We know of God's abundance, but he's calling on us to dive into that abundance almost as if we would dive off a dock into the ocean, uh, into the fullness of who God is, that we're going to give ourselves uh, to these practices. Uh, the word translated supply means to supply additionally, to supply further, even with a sense of abundance. Going over and beyond minimum expectations, going over the top, if you will. That's what he's talking about. In the days of Jesus and in the centuries even before, Greek drama was at a high point. Uh, famous Greek plays and tragedies like the Iliad, the Odyssey, Oedipus Rex, uh, Antigone. Uh, these were well known. They were performed with excellence. 
Whenever these plays were being presented in a local city, the city leaders would look for somebody, would recruit somebody that had some financial resources to be the supporter, to be the one who would supply all the financial needs for the production, but also would be a part of uh, providing the needs so that the sets could be marvelous. And if the sets were great in this city over here, and now this person who's the benefactor looks and says, oh, I saw what they did, we're going to go a little better. And then the next person, we're going to go a little better. It was always about, well, outdoing the other, but it was going over and above, making it all out. And that's the picture of supply that we have here. Uh, Peter uses the very same word for supply as is applied to those people who were the backers, the supporters of those plays. So that uh, Peter is saying to your faith, on top of your faith, add these qualities with abundance, with generosity, going above and beyond what some people might expect, but giving ourselves fully to the Lord. Heap on these attributes. Supply them lavishly. Add generously with abundance or supplement our faith. In the words of my late father-in-law, he would say, give it to her. And that's the idea. Give it to her in these, these qualities and experiences. Let's begin with the first quality that is shown in verse 5. Add to your faith or on your faith, in your faith, add a generous supply of moral excellence. What does Peter mean by moral excellence? I know sometimes when we hear anything about morality, we think, oh no, this is the rights and the wrongs, the do's, the don'ts. But I want us to see something deeper here. Looking at different translations of the scriptures can give us some insights into Peter's thinking. Uh, the ESV says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. New American Standard, which is what I've been reading, uh, says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. The NIV says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And the New Living Translation says, make every effort to respond to God's promises supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. New Living Translation makes the connection very clear back to the promises of God, uh, saying again, make every effort to respond to God's promises. But then it goes further with that addition, that supply. Supply generously, a generous provision of moral excellence. Now we note the similarities of effort, make every effort or apply all diligence, truly investing ourselves intentionally and enthusiastically, giving ourselves to these qualities. So we are to supply, add, supplement abundantly and lavishly. The last portion of the verses, these translations show virtue, moral excellence, goodness. So what is moral excellence? A synonym for moral excellence is virtue, and one of the uh, scripture translations uses that. Virtue is the quality of doing what is right and avoiding what is wrong. 
Most people understand virtue as a trait or quality that is deemed to be morally good. So we see that virtue speaks of good morality, uh, but it's not just something that is done well. It's something that is good and right. Or we could say that virtue is moral excellence. And to see that deeper picture here, we want to go back to verse 3, where it said, His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The word for excellence, God's glory and excellence, is the same word that in verse 5 is translated moral excellence. So Peter is using that same word intentionally that we would give ourselves to reflect the character of God, of his excellence, of his moral excellence. Peter's using the same term to remind us that we reflect the excellence of God himself. When people see Christians acting virtuously, then they see a beautiful reflection of God's moral excellence. That's what they are to see. How's your life reflecting the excellence of God? Peter's saying, let's dive into that. Let's reflect it. Let's, let's do the things that are blessings to God and blessings of God to us. And now, in addition to this abundant supply of moral excellence, Peter says, let's add knowledge. Let's think about some different aspects of knowledge. When I think about knowledge, I think of facts. I picture in my mind uh, a person with that thought bubble above them that is full of books. There are all sorts of books of facts. There are uh, science books. There are textbooks. There are books of philosophy. Uh, there are stories of heroes and also stories of tragic moments in history. As Sergeant Joe Friday of Dragnet used to say, for those of you who are old enough to remember that, just the facts, ma'am. Uh, just a whole bunch of facts. So that's what I tend to think of. Some might call this book learning. And we definitely get a lot of knowledge from book, or else why do we have to pay those terrible fees in college for those big, fat books and even the skinny books? Uh, but it's so that we can learn things. Now, biblically, we study, study the Bible. We seek its factual knowledge, but not just so we have a bunch of words in our minds. Rather, the Bible reveals to us facts about the nature and character of God, as well as the reality of humanity's struggle with sin. But knowledge is more than ingesting some gargantuan list, uh, and rather it is a knowledge that we gain through the scriptures that demonstrates the heart of the author, the heart and character of God. So building on our faith relationship, which is the foundation, we desire to add a deeper understanding of the heart and character of God who saved us and who loved us. And we discover the beautiful truths of God's heart. As we do so, we embrace him all the more. And we grow in our relationship with him. And then as we're growing in that relationship, we discover a path for our lives. We discover that the Lord, our shepherd, knows where to guide us and to protect us and to lead us forward. Through relationship, 
we are influenced in how we live. One of the tools that I use when I'm studying is called Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. And he gives a couple of definitions of knowledge. He says that knowledge is a seeking to know. Maybe we could say an investigation into the facts and maybe more than just the simple facts. Then he says, especially in the New Testament, the word is translated, uh, the word translated knowledge speaks of spiritual knowledge. It's not just a bunch of facts, but it's talking about spiritual knowledge. Even as we were worshiping this morning, I was asking the Lord, remind me of the that there's spiritual reality of who God is, that we are worshiping him and that he's to do the work. It's not about us. It's not about how good can I listen today or how good can I give this message today or how can I read the scriptures today, but rather, God, will you do your work in me? God, do what only you can do. There's a spiritual reality And it's this spiritual knowledge that we want to know and to understand. And if we are to generously apply this spiritual knowledge, where do we get that knowledge? Now, we might want to, if we have a particular question, ask someone. Ask someone that we respect, that we think has a pretty good understanding of God and following the Lord. And we ask them, what's your thought about this? Uh, We might ask other people who seem to know things about spiritual knowledge. Or we can read books written by trusted Christian scholars. And those are good places to look. And of course, we can Google most any topic. I sometimes use uh, Google searches and look for resources about different aspects to see. Uh, I have several different commentaries, but if I don't feel like I've gotten a broad enough picture, I will Google and I look at other Bible study tools that I can find online. But also I try to look, who is this site by? What group is doing this? Uh, Because some are putting out things that are deceptive, not reality when it comes to the scriptures. So we need to be careful about what we look at. How might Peter have suggested that Christ's followers find this spiritual knowledge? Not too hard, is it? He would have pointed them to the scriptures. God's word, God's given us. It said earlier in our passage that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God's word. So we look into the word. As Psalm 119 tells us, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. And then in verse 11 of that same psalm, your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Storing up facts of Scripture in our hearts, but not just as a list, but as a reminder of God whom we worship and serve and how we are to live for Him. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Again, the source of spiritual knowledge is God's Word. 
And the word is more than a printed word on a page, but it is the living word of God used in our lives. Peter would direct them to the scriptures themselves. Now, as we look around, and as you know different people, there are many professing Christians who are willing to settle for what other people tell them about God. Well, so-and-so says this, so-and-so says that, that, that must make it true. But in doing that, sometimes we might listen, we might hear a common saying like, cleanliness is next to godliness, or God helps those who help themselves. I'm sure you've heard those statements at some point, and you think, well, that's got to be in the Scripture. But look all you can, you'll never find those in the Scriptures. They're not in the Scriptures. We can say, well, there's some principle related to that, but it's not in the Scriptures. So to truly add spiritual knowledge, especially if we want a generous apply, then we need to come to the banquet table of God's Word, the Bible. To truly add this spiritual knowledge, we come to the Word. When the Apostle Paul and Silas came to the town of Berea, and they were telling people about Jesus, about the Messiah, and how God had sent him, and how he'd been raised from the dead. The people of Berea didn't just take their word for it. Every evening, they would go back, and they would pour over the scriptures. Now, at that time, they only had the Old Testament scriptures, but they would look over those scriptures to see if what Paul and Silas had said was in alignment with the scripture because they knew the scripture was the standard. The scripture was where they would go for food and they wouldn't just take someone's word for it. Giving yourself diligently to attain and practice spiritual knowledge through God's word. That's the second addition or quality that's added on to our foundation of faith. And then uh, we go on to self-control. <laughs> Isn't that a great one? Self-control. Oh, I don't like to say no to myself. I don't have to like to have to do this. I want to just do whatever. But this is talking about self-control. Uh, and through the help of one of my commentaries that I use, the Preacher's Commentary by Stuart Briscoe, I saw some different insights that might help us with this. Self-control, uh, to know what is right and wrong, is vitally important, but it's not enough to just know. Remember, we just had knowledge that we're talking about, and that knowledge would include that which is right and wrong, that spiritual knowledge. But Briscoe says it's not enough to just know what is right or wrong. We must also do what we know we should do. In many of our lives, he says, there's a great gulf between our knowledge and our conduct. And it was this problem that the Apostle James spoke of when he wrote, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. James 4 verse 17. And then he says the Greek word for self-control is sometimes translated as temperance. It's one element of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5.23. So he, he uses that to say in a real sense. It means more than self being in control. Rather, a more descriptive and accurate term would be God control. For only when we give ourselves to God 
for his control can we truly be self-controlled. Most of us think of self-control as exercising our own strengths and human power over our desires and passions. We might look at someone and say, that person has no self-control because they just seem to be all out there. But if we just straighten up and fly right, uh, then we'll be okay. Well, that's not what it's talking about here. This is not the self-control that Peter talks about. He's exhorting us to add these qualities onto the foundation of faith. So as we lean into our faith relationship with God, uh, we embrace virtue, doing that which is good and uh, that which is morally excellent. And as we fully embrace that good, we add spiritual knowledge of right and wrong according to the word of God. Then learning what is right and what is wrong uh, or maybe harmful, we choose by faith that which is right. We choose by faith that which is right. This is the self-control that Peter is talking about. It's that decision of faith. I will follow. I will obey. I will trust a self-control that surrenders our own desires to the will of God, saying no to self and yes to God. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me that death to self and living for Jesus, that is self-control. That is God control. That is Holy Spirit control as we give ourselves to him. This is self-control. And to your self-control, add perseverance. Add a generous supply. Remember, in all of these things, we are to be generous and practicing these things so uh, perseverance what does perseverance look like the Conklin boys love to play with Legos or assemble Legos and at birthday times and Christmas times sometimes they'll have these huge boxes uh, complex models that they're going to put together and then uh, when they get it out, all those tiny little pieces, all in the little bags that are numbered and things like that, and then they follow along the instructions and they put together these things and they work at it and work at it and work at it. Uh, recently, one of our other grandchildren had gotten a big kit and they, he asked Papa to come help assemble it. Well, his parents suggested that he asked Papa to help him assemble it. So he said, Papa, you can find the pieces for me. Well, Papa's eyes are older, and sometimes it was really hard to find which ones, and looking at those uh, pictures and trying to find the pieces. And then after we assembled the first segment, he said, you can go out and play with the girls now, his sisters and Nana. Uh, but it's because I was slowing them down. He could see the things right away. He knew what he needed, but he was waiting for Papa to find them. Uh, but he just persevered. And all these things, and you think, why, how can this ever become something? But he would persevere and persevere until he got it done. Or people who love to put together jigsaw puzzles. Are there any of you who love that, jigsaw puzzles? The real complex ones, maybe with lots of pieces? I uh, I'm, admire you uh, that you do that because you have to persevere. 
have to look for all those things, the intricate puzzle and the pieces and the colors and trying to put things together. Uh, I'm stymied if it's more than 100 pieces, and they have to be pretty big pieces. Uh, but that requires perseverance. Vine's Dictionary uh, says that perseverance is bearing up courageously under trial. The people of Ukraine are persevering. I can't begin to imagine what that must be like. For us, perseverance means do we have to hear this again? You know, we get tired of the news cycles, but they're living it over five months. And the war goes on. I heard a report last night that they're saying now this may be an extended conflict that will take years, multiple years. It boggles my mind, but they persevere through trial, through trial. Webster's Dictionary says that perseverance is a continued effort to do or achieve something despite difficulties, failure, or opposition. So that reminds me of an old saying. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Try, try again. Thomas Edison, the inventor of the light bulb and the phonograph and lots of other things, uh, he is quoted as saying this. He tried and tried and tried with the light bulb, but he wasn't successful for a long time, so people asked him about his failures. And Edison is quoted as saying, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. He also said, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always trying just one more time. And then, of course, as he was trying, Eureka, uh, he did discover. Personally, I like to think of perseverance as keeping on, keeping on. Just keep on. Don't give up. That's a Winston Churchill statement. Never give up. Never give up. So perseverance. And then to perseverance, we are to add a generous supply of godliness. Vine's Dictionary uh, this time defines godliness as piety characterized by a Godward attitude, doing what is well-pleasing to God. When I first read that definition, I thought, piety? What's piety? I know there were groups of people called pietists. The Quakers were pietists. The pilgrims were pietists. But what in the world does that mean? Uh, so I looked up piety. And the Cambridge Dictionary defined piety as a strong belief in a religion that is demonstrated through the way someone lives. And then synonyms.com, see I do go on the internet, defines it as loving obedience and service to God as the Heavenly Father. So in one sense, we could say that this godliness or piety is a devotion to God, a walking with Him in that relationship of love and care, living for Him as a fully devoted follower. Consider Godliness is faithfully walking with God. There was a person written in the book of Genesis whose name was Enoch. And Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 
That's all we really hear about Enoch. Amazing. He walked with God, and God took him. There was that relationship that was so blessed, so amazing. Uh, Enoch walked with God. Piety or devotion to God leads to godliness. Our own alliance core value states that completing the Great Commission will require the full mobilization of every fully devoted disciple. Fully devoted, dedicated, sold out to the Lord and to his mission. The preacher's commentary says that we receive godliness as we are dead to self and alive to God and as we allow the Spirit to live within us. The fruit of the Spirit are attributes of the character of God. The more that we are possessed by God, the more we will act like Him and the more His character will be revealed in our lives. And as we walk closely with Jesus, we will become more like him. As the Apostle John said in 1 John 3, verse 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. During the school year, I drive a school bus. Most mornings, I see a man walking his dog. And it appears that the dog loves to go out for walks with his human, and they are out there most every morning. And as I go down the road the, and the man sees the bus coming along this small road, he tugs on the dog's leash to move over to the side. Move over to the side of the road out of the path of the bus. Well, what does the dog do? He tries to go back to the middle and wants to be right out there where the action is, where the bus is going to come. The master tugs him along to the side to keep him safe. And as I saw this day after day, one morning it dawned on me that I'm a lot like that. That there are times when I, you know, I love to be with the Lord. I, I love to follow him. I want to be on those walks with him. And then, you know, it's like a squirrel or whatever. You, we see something and we're distracted and we want to go this way. And the Holy Spirit nudges at us to draw us back in to the right path to the safe path to keep us walking with him. Sometimes we're wanting to go the other way and we try to convince God, God, this is a good way to go. Let's go this way. Godliness is saying, Lord, I want to be with you. I want to follow you. Yes, Lord, I think about it this way, but if you're tugging me back, I'm going to follow you and go with you. So, I know that our relationship with God and our walk with God is really not that he has us on a leash. You know, it's not a picture of, a, of us with a, an animal. But it is uh, more like a picture of a child with her father. Think about that young child with the father who holds her hand and leads her across a busy road that would have been too dangerous for her to go by herself. Or who, uh, with her father, is able to go away from danger knowing that she is safe. That's the picture of our relationship with the Lord. There's a joy when we walk with the Lord in a close and loving relationship. And the Lord delights to lead us as we willingly yield ourselves to him. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. 
Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That picture of holding the hand of the Father. Godliness, devotion to God, walking with God, holding his hand, being devoted to walking with him and living for him. This is a quality of transforming faith. And then brotherly kindness. To godliness add a generous supply of brotherly kindness. The English Standard Version and New Living Translation use brotherly affection here. NIV says mutual affection. Our uh, passage uh, and King James and New King James says brotherly kindness. The original word in the Greek New Testament is Philadelphia. Uh, not the city, but our city is named after this term. We know it as the city of brotherly love, for it's a combination of two words. Philos, which is talking, one of the words in Greek that is translated love, and it's talking more of a familial love, a brotherly type of love. And then the Adelphia is talking about brothers or a group of brethren, a group that has some kind of relationship. It could be a family, it could be an organization, uh, it could be a church family. All of these uh, ideas. But it can refer to the love we have for each other as family members or close friends. The care we have for those with whom we have a close relationship. The preacher's commentary says that Peter uses this word in instructing us regarding the importance of having unfeigned love for the brethren. 1 Peter 1 verse 22. Paul, he says, teaches us to be kindly, affectionate to one another in brotherly love. Romans 12 verse 10. This is one of the amazing qualities of the church of Jesus Christ. We're to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and as members one of another. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. We must live out our faith by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then in Matthew Henry's commentary, he says, we must add brotherly kindness, a tender affection to all our fellow Christians, for we are children of the same father, servants of the same master, members of the same family, travelers to the same country, and heirs of the same inheritance, and therefore are to love with a pure heart fervently as those who are peculiarly near and dear to us in whom we take particular delight. To love each other with delight. Love one another. In John 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ with loving affection. Practicing brotherly kindness includes caring deeply about each other, supporting each other, encouraging each other, speaking into each other's lives as people who care. Jesus never intended to throw us into the deep end of the faith pool to sink or swim by ourselves. Rather, he placed us in a body. He placed us in a family that we could grow together, that we could encourage each other, that we could support each other, that we would grow together in loving relationship. 
And the, the apostle Peter knew the importance of the supporting love of the fellowship when he exhorts us to intentionally and enthusiastically add brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, we are to add a generous supply of love. Adding on to the love of brotherly kindness, Peter says we should lavishly supply agape love. According to Trench's synonyms of the New Testament, agape love involves a volitional decision, an act of the will, an act based on a reasoned decision. It is an act of our will to love another person. Romans 5.8 gives us an example of this type of love in action where it says God demonstrated his own love in us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He chose to love us. He chose to give his life for us while we were at odds, while we were enemies. He chose to love us. God chose to love us in spite of our sins, sending Jesus to die for us. Sometimes when we hear the word agape love, we think of God's love because God is the greatest example of that love. But agape love chooses to love even when we don't feel like it. Agape love is willing to sacrifice its own comfort, its own desires, its own well-being in order to demonstrate love for others. So Peter exhorts us to embrace agape love, a love that chooses to love the unlovable, a love that reaches beyond those with whom we are in a friendly or family relationship, a love that reaches out beyond ourselves and even outside of our comfort zone. This is a decisive love, a decision of love, a volitional love reaching out to others even if they don't love back. Reflecting his heart, we reach out to those that others neglect or reject. We act with mercy and grace as we love people who are undeserving. Even as I mention people who are rejected or people who are undeserving, I'm sure that a person comes to your mind. Agape love chooses to love that person. We choose to sacrifice our own desires to meet the needs of others. On the foundation of our faith, we intentionally supply a generous portion of agape love. So this morning, we've taken a quick look at these seven uh, characteristics or uh, qualities of a transformed life, of a transforming life, uh, it's been a, just a quick look. There's much more that we could talk about and that we could do to dig into this further. But remember that in verse 8, Peter said, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. True faith transforms. It changes us. It blesses, it improves, it strengthens. Christian faith shines through lives of devotion and service for God and for others. 
Do you expire? Do you desire? I hope not expire. Do you desire a vibrant, living faith? And surrender yourself to God and lean into these seven qualities of transforming faith with diligence and vigor. We're going to pray, and as we do, I want these to be on the screen before you. There are seven things added on to the foundation of faith, seven qualities. Though we've only scratched the surface of these, probably God the Holy Spirit has had you hone in on one of them or maybe two, something that you're thinking, oh, that might be something that God wants to work on me to develop further. What has God been saying to you? How has he been speaking to your heart? Maybe it would be, I've got to go beyond just doing the minimum. I want to be one of those people who dive in and lavishly supply, lavishly give myself into these qualities. Or maybe you've sensed his voice speaking about maybe something that would be of a moral issue that you need to give to him. Or something related to knowledge, giving yourself to God's word. Uh, Self-control, God-control giving ourselves to him, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, love. How is God speaking to your heart? Let's pray. Lord, as you have spoken to us in your word, your word, your word is living and active. And we pray, Lord, that you would do uh, the things that you have spoken to us this morning and that you will speak to each of our hearts And Lord, that you would help us to respond by faith. To respond by faith that is foundational. And then to dive into these qualities. For Lord, we don't want to just be uh, knots on a log when it comes to our faith. But we want to be living, active, breathing Christians who love you and care for you and care for others. We want to have a vibrant, active faith. So, Lord, help us to lean into these qualities. Help us to surrender ourselves to you. And, Lord, by your power and your grace and mercy, would you fill us with yourself that we might reflect you. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.